I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security Enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the master's program. David Reedman is an associate at the Cadmus Group, working in their Homeland Security practice, and has been a volunteer firefighter with Montgomery County, Maryland Fire Rescue Service for 15 years. We met following the 2017 APEX conference where he presented his thesis findings. His work has also been featured in the June 2017 edition of the Homeland Security Affairs Journal. When David first came to NPS, he was the Homeland Security Manager for the downtown DC Business Improvement District. This downtown area, near the White House and other prominent buildings, drives the regional economy. So David worked with local DHS critical infrastructure representatives to develop a threat dashboard for commercial properties. Through this process, he began to see that the rubric used to determine an asset's risk profile didn't apply to commercial and retail facilities, which are considered a critical asset sector by DHS. He was left with a fundamental question, and it became one of the motivations to apply to the NPS program. So you mentioned definition. The DHS definition for critical infrastructure, which you cite in your thesis is, and I'm quoting, the assets, systems, and networks, whether physical or virtual, so vital to the United States that their incapacitation or destruction would have a debilitating effect on national security, national economic security, national public health or safety, or any combination thereof. That says a lot. How did DHS come up with that definition? Yeah, the DHS definition of infrastructure, there's there's not a definitive way to say this is how it was decided. But, you know, it's a very inclusive definition and it, there's some thought that went into it. So I started to really unpack that by looking at what were the influences that people would have drawn on as they were framing the mission of the, of the department back in 2001 and 2002. And a lot of the leadership within DHS are people that have come from a military background. And so I took a look at how does the military look at critical infrastructure? And that led me to Colonel Warden, who was a high officer in the Air Force and a special advisor to the vice president. And he taught at the Army War College, one of the masterminds of strategic air power. And I found he had a concept uh, for having air supremacy in a in a battle that you identify the organic essentials of a country. And those organic essentials are the different systems where if you knock them out, the rest of the country is going to start crumbling. So they're going to be your strategic targets to attack with your air force. And once you topple them, then the country is going to concede or it's not going to be sustainable to keep running it or so on. So when you look at that DHS definition, it's more or less the same thing. These are the assets where they're so vital, if something happens to them, the rest of the system is going to crumble apart. You know, I don't have definitive proof of it, but it seems that Colonel Warden's teachings align pretty well with the way that we kind of framed what critical infrastructure is. It's the organic essentials uh, here domestically. So how many facilities are considered critical by DHS? One of the, the big challenges uh, with critical infrastructure is so much of it sits behind the um, security classification and say, oh, well, this can't be public. We can't make a list public because then the terrorists will know what all of our critical facilities are. But GAO 
and the uh, inspector general's office and various congressional offices and the Congressional Research Service. You know, I've been taking a look into infrastructure protection for quite a while because we're spending about $4 billion a year just on programs that are directly tied to infrastructure protection. Once you think about all of the ancillary state and local and other agency budgets that go into it, it's quite a bit more than that. But based on uh, some GAO reports, the latest number that I found was 77,000 facilities, a pretty substantial list. By comparison, in Great Britain, they have about 500 facilities. Looking back in history, before DHS was formed, there were some kind of initial quantifications. And there were the first list came out was 124, and then 200 some after that. And then once DHS was created, that balloons pretty quickly to this 77,000. There are now 17 classifications of critical infrastructure, one of which is commercial facilities. And this is an area that you explore in detail. What is it about commercial facilities that drew your attention? Yeah, initially, the, the work that I did with the DHS PSAs, the Protective Security Advisors, uh, who are out doing assessments and doing work with local jurisdictions every day is kind of their, their job to assist people in understanding and you know, assessing infrastructure. My, the assessments that I, I conducted with them at a couple of facilities really piqued my interest. And then once I looked at the initial breakdown, yeah, there's a pie chart that was put together that shows all of the different infrastructure sectors, all 16 sectors, and there's this huge chunk of the pie. It's roughly about 30% of the pie is commercial facilities. Uh, so they are the biggest sector. Of those 77,000. Of the 77,000, there are more than 30,000 critical commercial facilities. And these commercial facilities aren't chemical uh, producers. They aren't factories. They are casinos, entertainment, sports arenas, lodging, convention centers. So what began to kind of pop up as a red flag for me is we have more than 30,000 casinos potentially across the country where any one of them would cause a debilitating effect to the entire nation. And that is where I really started kind of pulling the strings and doing some background research. What is the methodology for getting something on the oh. critical infrastructure list? Yeah, so with, especially with commercial facilities, uh, government facilities are the next biggest chunk. DHS doesn't have the resources to have somebody go out and assess and determine what the threats are to a facility. They rely on people to self-assess risk, to self-determine threats. And when people are doing at the local level, their Thyra, their threat and hazard identification within a jurisdiction, and they reach out to, you know, maybe some local businesses in that area. And if you're the, you know, only big box retailer in, you know, a Midwest community, and you take a look and you start scoring yourself. Well, what's the impact to the community going to be when we're closed? Well, that's a five. It's going to be really big. We're the only big box retailer. And, you know, are you prepared against all hazards? Well, no, we, we don't have backup power. We don't, this is not a earthquake proof building or a tornado could tear us apart. Do you have resilient backup systems as your IT infrastructure? And all of a sudden this Walmart can look really important. This facility that really has no impact to the nation, it probably doesn't even have impact to the region or maybe even outside of that neighborhood. Or that neighborhood, if it has multiple stores, what are the chances that they all you know, are destroyed at the same time? 
it really starts to unravel pretty quickly. But if you allow somebody to self-assess and you prime them with questions that are about what happens if your facility is incapacitated, you're going to rate things very high. A great example of this is uh, there's a, a study that was put together back in 2004 or five, uh, it's cited in my thesis, that was commissioned by the casinos in Clark County, Nevada. And the casinos put together a big threat profile and threat assessment of why every single casino in Las Vegas was absolutely essential to the economy of the United States. Unfortunately, a dozen of those casinos have been demolished. So they made the decision to destroy these facilities just to maintain that economy there uh, within Las Vegas. So how can every one of those casinos be critical when 12 of them are gone now? And it really starts to fall apart there. So what is the impact of the mismatch that's going on in terms of what you just described and what the federal government says is a critical infrastructure location? Yeah, there are two different mismatches. The first is that the mission from the DHS level is framed around impacts to the entire nation. The way that the mission is carried out is from the local level up of having people determine and assess risks, having things like the folks working in the PSA program out working directly with individual providers you know, at that community and local level. So there's th that focus on local impact combined with a definition that's all about national impact. The two just don't meet. Which is why we have 77,000 items on the list instead of the original hundred or a couple hundred. Right. And that list is potentially going to get substantially larger now uh, because just last month, uh, 17th sector was added and that's state and local elections and election systems. So there are 113,000 polling sites across the country. What happens now that those are critical infrastructure? Does every one of them need security and staff? Do they need CCTV? Do they need a backup location? Do they need a power generator? Do we need a fence? Do we need staff? How do you apply the concept of infrastructure protection if each one of those sites would cause a debilitating impact to the nation if something happened to it to 113,000 polling locations. Pretty tough. <laughs> right. And that's going to be, you know, a big challenge moving forward. So already we're potentially looking at a, a list that's now uh, more than 200,000 facilities. As a mission grows larger and larger, you dilute the opportunity to kind of identify things that matter. Once you have 200,000 facilities, there are things out there that do matter but they just get lost inside this huge sea of different priorities. If everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. Exactly. And overall, this is the way that a lot of the kind of wicked problems we face with Homeland Security or just the country in general, uh, whether you're talking about transportation or infrastructure or finances and wh whatever, any issue, you have competing interests at the federal, state, and local level. At the local level, things really matter to people in their community. And nobody at the federal level ever wants to say, no, you're not important. No, we don't care about you. So there's generally a very inclusive uh, strategy where if you would like to be part of the infrastructure list, come on, we're happy to have you. It makes everybody feel good, but it creates a, an expansive mission. You examine three case studies related to commercial facilities in your thesis. 
You talk about Lower Manhattan after 9-11, Las Vegas casinos, which you mentioned, and the water supply in Charleston, West Virginia. Take me through one of these based on your analysis. Yeah, so the, the Charleston, West Virginia case is very interesting. It was the Elk River there, and there was a chemical plant uh, that was right by the Elk River. And there's some uh, pretty old chemical storage tanks that had extremely toxic chemicals. One of those storage tanks was leaking and leaked directly into the Elk River. And the Elk River is the only water source for the neighboring areas. In a lot of the descriptions of infrastructure, it's about cascading impacts across systems. And you have some lifeline systems and water is one of them. And so you see flow charts where once you lose the water system, all these other things fall apart because then you can't do manufacturing and then you can't maintain food services and emergency services rely on water. And you think that you're gonna have all these cascading impacts and the whole system just starts to unravel. So that was the case in Charleston. You had a municipal water system where there was no clean water available, but it didn't fall apart because we have tremendous regional resiliency. Almost instantly, you're able to bring in bottled water. And once you have bottled water, people now can drink, so you have some time to figure things out. If you have manufacturing, water is going right into the wastewater system. It really doesn't matter whether it has a chemical in it or not. Unless you're bottling that water or you're doing some sort of food-related things, it didn't matter. Then, you know, they took a look at the safety of the water and kind of the dilution of the chemicals and realized, okay, it's still good to bathe with. So you still have the majority of a municipal water system. You can't cook with it, you can't drink with it, but you can bathe, you can still use it for wastewater. If there's a building on fire, you can still turn on the fire hydrant and you have water there. So really this incapacitation of a lifeline system didn't happen even though it had a toxic chemical leached into it because the systems and components don't just instantly fall uh, as, as one of them is damaged. There's a tremendous amount of resiliency. And then for those essential lifeline services like drinking water, we have bottled water readily available. You know, Flint, Michigan, once they identify there was an issue, we can get water there. And we can get all the bottled water people can drink until we figure out a workaround. And that's what resiliency is. And that's the opposite of most of the kind of thinking around critical infrastructure, which is all about collapse. Something goes out, the entire system is incapacitated. But that really doesn't occur. As part of your research, and you mentioned it earlier with the United Kingdom and what they do, you looked at other practices, in particular what they do in the UK. How do they address this issue? The UK designates their infrastructure as national infrastructure. You don't even enter the conversation unless it's something with a national impact. And then they use a kind of vulnerability matrix to assess threats to the nation based on that, which is kind of a completely separate mentality than the way that we've looked at it. As, as a result, there are far fewer things on the list? Yeah, only a couple hundred in the UK. And granted, it's a smaller country, but that could show even more vulnerability. When you're a small country, you have less resiliency from all the other pieces of your country. And that's what we've seen across our country is that even large disruptions, 9-11 in New York, Hurricane Katrina, and so on, they cause extreme local impacts. They cause a rippling regional impact. And then they have some sort of 
ancillary impact across the whole nation, but not a debilitating impact. So Hurricane Katrina, what we felt the most in the Northeast was increased gas prices for a couple months. Paying $4 a gallon isn't great for the consumer. It's not great for the economy, but it doesn't debilitate the country. And that's where we really need to re-examine um, how we apply you know, this, this definition. And there's only so much money and resources and time to go around in order to evaluate a piece of critical infrastructure. So by having a list that is more appropriately cultivated or the right things on the list, we can put the right amount of resources to the right things. Yep. In your thesis, you have other recommendations as far as how this whole situation could be changed. What are some of those? Having a generally inclusive infrastructure protection strategy that really relies on people self-assessing the risk is going to create a lot of need that's driven from the local and the community level. And that's very important at the local and community level, but that's not a national issue to be concerned about. If we have limited national resources and limited national attention, we need to go from that expansive strategy to having people show what your national impact is from your facility. And once you can prove national impact, then we can focus on it because it's something that is tremendously important to the nation. And that falls into the Homeland Security vision. One opportunity is to either refocus on our current definition that if the facility doesn't have debilitating impacts to the nation, it's not going to be something for DHS to be involved with. The complete flip of that would be if we want to really pay attention at the national level to local and regional issues, there needs to be additional funding. There needs to be additional staff. There needs to be a rewrite in the infrastructure protection policy and definition to address that. So either laser focus on things that matter to the entire nation, or we need to massively reinvest and refund and re-examine the way that a DHS is addressing infrastructure protection. You mentioned debilitating consequences to the U.S. That's the wording from DHS. How would your analysis change, and you allude to this a little bit, if we replaced United States with State of Washington or City of New Orleans? There's infrastructure that's very important to local jurisdictions, but it's complicated because the only way that communities change and rebuild these kind of critical infrastructure systems one case that I allude to in the thesis is the I-35 bridge in Minneapolis. And that was the most highly trafficked bridge in that area. And it was critical uh, for getting people across a major highway, but it hadn't been maintained over a 50-year history until it collapsed. Once it collapsed, instantly money was put into building a new, better bridge. But even at the local level, very important infrastructure is still not invested in either from a security standpoint or just from a maintenance standpoint. And that really complicates this idea of kind of nationally important issues because when local jurisdictions are not making any investments in maintaining things that are very important to that local jurisdiction, you could point to you know, the levees in New Orleans. They had been rated to be insufficient for 50 years before Hurricane Katrina came. Everybody knew and had written about and had gamed that scenario and knew it was going to happen. But it wasn't important to the local politicians in New Orleans. It wasn't important to the state senators or congressmen or the governor until something happened. And then there's this moment of opportunity that that presents 
And then there's been, you know, reinvestment and rebuilding. But infrastructure is, as I said earlier, a wicked problem in that they're, it's underfinanced. There are too many different competing interests that are involved in it. And it's these overtaxed, overused systems that don't have any extra capacity. So there's really no way to address anything until something happens to it. And then that gives us this opportunity to rebuild it differently. Many people in DHS are responsible for critical infrastructure protection. What would they say about your research and how would you respond to them? People have reached out to me from across the country at different levels and uh, different backgrounds. And overall, there's general agreement that it's too expansive. It's too diluted. People don't know where to focus. They're going all over the place. You know, being involved in Thyra's and the state preparedness report in the past, it's too much information to have any useful focus in the specific areas that do matter. If you've got one tunnel in your jurisdiction, you're really worried about that tunnel because it's either vulnerable to an attack or it's just ready to break down. And that tunnel is what you really care about and what you want to do. Still, when you're doing your Thyra, you've got to list a couple hundred things because you've got to talk about the airport and you've got to talk about the bridge and the port and the water system and the subway. And once all of those pieces get added and you come up with this volume of possible risks and threats, that, that tunnel is just lost in the noise there. So there's no way to really highlight the things that matter and the areas of focus. And a big part of that is that there's so many people involved and every one of them has a different priority. What class at NPS helped you most with your thesis? The classes at NPS that really helped me kind of go down the thesis road, you have this introduction with Professor Bellavita and variety of readings that kind of challenge conventional thinking. What would you say to a prospective applicant? If they're looking at the application, they're like, holy crap, this is a lot to do. It is a lot of work up front, but it's a lot of work throughout the program. As with anything, you get as much out as you put in. If you're looking at the five essays and you're thinking, I don't have time to sit down and write five essays, you need to make the time to write the five essays and write really great ones. Because if you put a lot of effort into that, there's a good chance of being admitted. Once you're in the program, you can skim the books. Or you cannot read the books. You can do the assignments. You can't. But you can put the maximum effort into every single one of them and get a lot out and learn in the process. There were areas that I never you know, had particular interest in, topics that you know, I had never thought about. Suddenly, you have this new perspective. Anything else to add, whether about the NPS experience or something I should have asked related to your topic? The next step is with just about everyone's thesis, you dive into a small portion. It opens up dozens of questions. Professor Woolman will tell you, you can't explore every one of these. You need to pick two and then pick one. And once you get to that one, you still have all these unanswered on the periphery. Within my thesis, I've presented a bunch of issues, but I have not presented a lot of solutions. I think that a, a lot of folks here have started a methodology but how is it implemented? Where does it go? What's the, the next step? And this research has just led me to say there's a problem with the definition, but where do we go from there? How do we address it? How do we come up with a methodology for determining what is critical at the national level? Is it a scoring system? Is it a narrative system? Is it a panel 
that gets to decide. So there's this entire execution and implementation piece. And that's you know something that I didn't have time to explore, but somebody needs to in the future because it's, it's great to put together a long explanation of the issues, but ultimately that doesn't get you anywhere if there's not a solution to move forward. I hope you've enjoyed hearing David Reedman discuss his thesis, How Critical is Critical Infrastructure? For more information on this research, browse to the Homeland Security Affairs Journal or visit the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Critical Infrastructure. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future Homeland Security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. For information on the master's, executive leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.